Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Lord God, Father in heaven, thank you for involving us in the work that you are doing. Thank you for using the way you've made us to give worship, to give glory to you and to your name. Thank you for Kelly. Thank you for Brian. Examples of how you incorporate our very selves in the work that you are up to. God, thank you for your word and for the various ways in which we can receive it through listening, through reading, through hearing it sung. You are such a creative God. And you want to commune with us. You want to be in relationship to us. And there are so many different ways that you attempt to move toward us. So thank you for that. Keep speaking. Help us to hear and help us to receive this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is the final week in our series on the Lord's Prayer. And we're actually going to talk about the part of the prayer that isn't in the text. It's not a part of the Bible. Um, and it's the doxology, it's the ending, that as we recite it and as we hear it often, uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, um, it is one of those things that we say as part of the prayer, and yet it is not technically part of the prayer that Jesus gave to us as we have received it in the book of Matthew and in Luke. But we're still going to talk about it, because I actually think it does something um, in beautifully in helping us to be pulled back into the prayer and the geography of the spiritual life that we've just walked through in praying. And in many ways, I think the doxology, this praise that's attached to the ending, does something similar to what the song that Kelly and Brian just played and sang over us does, which is it pulls us up and almost suspends time for a minute to show us what we've been doing, what we've been praying, the life that we've been brought into with God. I don't know about you, but this series in the Lord's Prayer, when, when we began it, when I started it, uh, I don't think I realized the impact that it would have on my own life. Uh, and so I don't know if you know this, but pastors, preachers, it's not like we know what we're doing. Uh, And so when we come up with ideas of, hey, it might be good to go through something like the Lord's Prayer, I can't even tell you why that would be a good, like, just something that came to mind and talking with others, it seemed like that would be good to do, why not? But then as we were going through it, as I've been praying it, as we've been praying it together, I've just noticed the ways through which God has worked in my life and in the life of others, and being attentive to God in this way, in praying the words that Jesus gave to us, and receiving this prayer as an invitation into life with God and with each other, and as a way to be invited into having our imaginations reshaped to see that the life that Jesus came to give, the abundant life that he says he offers, is truly the good life that we are to be seeking despite whatever versions of the good life, we are constantly, often, always going after. 
but it's also an invitation to, to be a people together who are shaped by Jesus. That this is the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. This is the prayer that the disciples continued to give to people, that the church over time has continued to give to us. And that's what I love about the doxology, is because I think it testifies to that truth, that it's a prayer that Jesus gave to us, but it's also a prayer that his disciples over the long history of the church has continued to give to us. So why the doxology? Why is it there? Why is this last refrain tacked on to the end of this prayer? So I just want to talk about very briefly the history of this. Um, and actually, it's not entirely known when it was tacked on. Last week, Steve Porter mentioned something called the Didache, which is this early document of Christian teaching and practice. And a form of this doxology is actually found there. So within the first century, after Christ, when he gave us this prayer, somehow the church, the disciples, the apostles, seemed that it would be good to have this as part of the prayer. That this would be something that would be worth saying to end the prayer. And what it testifies to is actually the way in which this prayer was used in liturgical use. It mean, it's really, in fact, Jewish, this doxology. Because a, a Jewish person praying couldn't imagine having a prayer that they would pray continually and regularly without ending it in some way testifying to the goodness, the power, the glory, and the kingdom of God. So in some ways, this prayer that Jesus gave to us and that people continued to pray is a good Jewish prayer that, again, connects us to the story God has been telling since the beginning of time, since calling Israel to himself, since coming to us in Jesus, since forming a community of people through the power of the Spirit. Actually, this doxology is reminiscent of one that is found in 1 Chronicles 29.11. It says this, and it's David who's actually praying as a consecrating the temple, saying, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So in some ways, this doxology is very appropriate. But what is it doing? And that's kind of what I would like to talk about this morning, is what is this doxology doing? When we get to the end of this prayer, and we are praying this, what is actually taking place in our prayer? Well, one of the things it suggests is that the life of prayer, or a life of prayer, drawn to its logical conclusion, will always end in praise and adoration of God. If you look at the Psalms and the structure of the book of Psalms, though you have many prayers in which some people are simply talking with God, rehearsing what he's done, or lamenting at the very depths of life. If you, if you were to pray from beginning to end the book of Psalms, you would see that that life of prayer ends over and over with praise and adoration to God. Because a life formed by prayer is a life that is formed or transformed to see God for who he really is, and when that happens, there is nothing left to do but to praise. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the doxology, what it does is it pulls us up again. And it rehearses in some ways what we've already prayed. 
making ourselves, our minds, attentive to who God is. And in that way, I want to suggest that the doxology be, helps us see that the Lord's Prayer, as we end it, is a prayer of witness, of empowerment, and trust. So I want to talk about these three things in relation to the Lord's Prayer. That if we were to pray the Lord's Prayer and have a life that is shaped by the prayer that Jesus gave us, we would see that it is a prayer of witness, of empowerment, and trust. So what do I mean by this? Well, I want to talk about this prayer being a witness in two different ways. It first testifies to what is true about God. So as we looked about the Lord's Prayer, right, we saw that, that it begins with, with a focus on, on Jesus pulling us into life with God, our Father in heaven. But it directs our attention to the Father who is in heaven to his kingdom, to his will. And then it pushes us back town to look around at ourselves and our world, to begin praying for our needs, for forgiveness, for protection. And then this doxology pulls us back up again, our attention back up to God to remind us to whom it is we are praying. We are offering these words, where we have been with God in this prayer. So it bears witness to God as Father, but it also bears witness to us as his children. So it bears witness to what is true about God and true about us. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself, as children through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So what is this doing? We are children of the Father in heaven. Our standing, our identity, is nothing less than a child of God. If we are connected to the person of Jesus Christ and what He has done in His life, death, and resurrection, we are God's children. That should never get old to hear. That we are the children of God who by his grace and his mercy and through the power of the Holy Spirit have been brought into his family. And what that means is I am a child if connected to Jesus. You are his children if connected to Jesus. We are brothers and sisters. We are new family. We are new family. We have been pulled in to the family of God. You are my brother and my sister. I am your brother. And that is to bear witness to the world of this Father in heaven who does nothing less than give life to his children. It is the Father who takes upon himself the work and the striving and the struggle and says, you, there is open invitation. Come and follow me. I have done what needs to be done so that you can be my child. When we look in the mirror and we look in the faces of others, we are to see nothing less than one whom God has said, you are my child. I am your father who is good and who is in heaven. So as we get pulled through this prayer as a witness to say, this is who you are, this is who God is, it also bears witness to the fact that, that God is one who has a will, who has a kingdom, and it is good, and that we as his children are to pursue after his kingdom, 
after his will. It's a, it bears witness to the fact that we are people who are in need and that our Father is generous and abundant, that we do not live in a world defined by scarcity but by abundance and generosity, that we are people who can receive freely the grace, the forgiveness that God as Father gives to his children, that he holds nothing back, that there is no catch to God's grace and mercy. It says in 1 John 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, he will be faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is what we are bearing witness to when we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. It bears witness to the fact that we are people who not only received forgiveness, but are called to offer and extend forgiveness. And Eric Balmer talked about that sense of, of death that comes with that, that it's actually a, a high calling to live this, this cruciform life, one that, that, is, that is difficult and hard but possible because we are God's children who have been forgiven and can therefore extend forgiveness to others. It bears witness to the fact that we are weak and we are vulnerable and we need God's protection, that we often, if the circumstances are right, live lives we would rather not live that we make mistakes that we would wish we didn't have. So we need to pray and ask that God would deliver us from evil, that he would lead us not into temptation because we are vulnerable and we need God's help to be faithful to God. This prayer bears witness to this truth. But the prayer is also a witness in that it shapes us to be witnesses. So the prayer is a witness that in, as we pray, as we see who God is, as we see who we are, we become people who bear witness to God in the world. That the prayer shapes and forms us to care about the things that God cares about. To see that the things we've been given, they are not our own, but they are to be given away to others. If there are people in need among us, there is no, we, should, we need to give we have been asked to give. Give us this day our daily bread. As we pray that prayer, we are acknowledging that gifts become from God. And if there are others in need, perhaps we are the answer to that prayer for them. That we are in need, again, of that forgiveness and can therefore extend forgiveness. That we are called to be people who recognize temptation, who recognize our propensity to be led away, to recognize our propensity even for evil and to turn away, and to be holy and blameless before God. So this prayer is a witness, in that it bears witness to what's true about God and what's true about us, but it's a prayer that shapes us into faithful witnesses of God. It, it pulls us in. As we pray, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, it pulls us in to this kingdom, and it also pushes us out to bear witness to this kingdom. This prayer, there's just so much to it. Let's just do it again. <laughs> it's also a prayer of empowerment. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, as we pray, for thine is the kingdom, and it pulls us into that kingdom life, bearing witness to who God is, who we are, and also propelling us outward um, to bear witness to that in the world. It's also a prayer of empowerment. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So this sense of power and glory, as we go back into the prayer and see where we've been, we see that God is the one who has the power. As we pray, 
this prayer that Jesus gave to us, we recognize how incapable we are without the power of God. The prayer the entire time is constantly acknowledging what God can do and who God is. It doesn't say anything about our power. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us, as the giver, this day our daily bread. Forgive us and make it possible for us to forgive others. Lead us not into temptation. Constantly, the prayer is saying that what you've prayed is only possible because of the power of God at work and on display in the person of Jesus. So what does this do then? This sense that, that if it's about God's power and not ours, well, it actually reframes what, it, what the Christian life is. That the Christian life is fundamentally one of being dependent before God, acknowledging our need for a physician in our sickness and for healing, acknowledging our inability often to be faithful, to live the lives we'd like to live before Jesus, acknowledging that we cannot provide for our, our very needs, that only God can, that the prayer is one that helps us be attentive to the fact that it's because of God's power, because of God's power that the Christian life is actually possible, that you have been invited into God's family, not because you're awesome, but because God is one of love, of faithfulness, of grace, and of mercy, and wants you to be a part of it. So what is left for us to do is to say, okay, and to respond, and to walk toward the God who is already walking toward us. In the story of the prodigal, it's like the son running to the father who's been there, running toward him, waiting this entire time for the son to return. That is the story of the Christian life. But it also, when we pray this prayer, we recognize what power means. So if it's a prayer of empowerment for us, it means that power comes by way of vulnerability and of weakness. It it comes by way of acknowledging what we are incapable of doing and what God is capable of. That the prayer helps us be attentive to the life and death of Jesus Christ, whose power was displayed in something so scandalous and ridiculous and something like as, as big of a failure as the cross. That that is the version of power that is on display. That is God's version of power. So it's a prayer of empowerment to show us that the way to power is to actually letting go and giving up and dying to ourselves. That that is what it means to be one who is power. And, and that doesn't make sense, right? If, if some of you... Maybe this is your first time or you don't know much about the gospel or you are here and you don't even know why you're here. That seems weird. So how are we talking about power as this, in the sense of giving up? Well, the gospel is constantly turning power on its head. This is the thing about Jesus. He says weird things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first, right? He says things that, that talking about how those of you who are seeking and wanting glory will be brought low. But those who are low and oppressed will be, will be brought high. Before this, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, blessed are the poor and the meek and the mourning and the persecuted. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. But God 
as he displays in the person of Jesus, his form of power is one in which the tables are turned, and power is most faithfully and gloriously displayed in the person of Jesus, who went to the cross holding nothing back for our sake and for the sake of the world. That is what power looks like. Philippians 2, 3 through 11 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what is power and glory as defined by God incarnate in Jesus Christ? It is one of self-emptying. It is not one of, of what, can, what somebody can gain, the type of intellect somebody has, the type of status that somebody has, the type of degrees that somebody has. That, the way that the world defines power has no place in the Christian life or in the story of God. The way that we, as followers of Jesus, are to define power is the way that Jesus did, giving his complete and utter self in death for the sake of the world. So what does it mean for us as Christians called into the world to bear witness to the kingdom, to this power, and to this glory? It's to give up ourselves for the sake of others. To give up our personal sense of comfort and safety so that others might be comfortable and safe. It's giving up our sense of ability and strength and what we think we can do on our own and say, we give and give and give because that is the type of God we serve. The one who empties himself and he's obedient to the point of death on a cross. And where does glory come from? It comes from God. Raising Christ. Raising Christ high above all. Our glory is not to be found in, in the ways that we think or in the ways that our world defines glory. Our glory comes from God saying, you are glorified. You have been faithful. That's what we're praying in this prayer. And that's what this doxology is helping attune our minds to. A New Testament scholar says this, to pray in Jesus' name is to invoke the name of the stronger than strong. It is appealed to the one through whom the, sent, the creator of the world has become king, has taken the power of the world, and has defeated it with the power of the cross, has confronted the glory of the world, and has outshone it with the glory of the cross. Of course, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we find again and again that what we want to pray for subtly changes as we focus on Jesus himself. Part of the game is the readiness in great things and small to put our plans and hopes on hold and let God remake them as we gaze upon him, revealed in the inglorious glory of the manger, in the powerless power of the cross. 
But when we allow that to happen bit by bit and then come with holy boldness into the presence of our Father, we discover that He really does have prepared for those who love Him such good things as past human understanding. I love that. The inglorious glory of the manger and the powerless power of the cross that Christians follow a, follow a man who was born and the whole world couldn't care less. We follow a man whose most glorious moment was one of utter failure in the eyes of the watching world. Power and glory looks a whole lot different from that perspective. So if the world, or even when we look at the church, and we say things like, what a failure it is. Why are they not better or good enough? Look at all of these things. It's so unspectacular and mundane and ridiculous. Perhaps we're like Jesus. Perhaps we're not so special in the way that Jesus Christ was not so special. That our being named as God's children, that our being called out, that our being brought together in the body of Christ and in the family of God means something because God is the one who has done it in Jesus through the Spirit. He defines the terms of what power and glory look like. We don't. So may we be faithful as we pray this prayer and have lives shaped by God's definition of power and glory to bear witness to what that looks like in the world. We are not called to be powerful in the way that the world would, would have it or glorious. We are called to be faithful all the way to death so that God might raise us up before the world to say, to proclaim glory and praise to the God who for all time has only and ever been committed to reconciling the world to himself. But it's also a prayer of trust. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. One theologian says that the word amen, let it be so, or it is sure, however you might define the word amen, that it's faith's biggest word. Amen, that it's faith's biggest word. What do we mean by that? When we say amen, we are proclaiming that what we have prayed is true, will be true. Now, I don't know about you, but we live lives in hope, right? In utter hope that God, as he did with Jesus Christ, will vindicate us. That the life we live as Christians often is peculiar and strange and weird and for some up crazy why do you do this why are you still believing when the world is telling you you shouldn't when there are so many other things you could be doing with your time well to say to pray this prayer to say amen is to put our lives and what we've prayed in the hands of god and in the hope that rests in his hands that we would one day be vindicated, that our lives are hidden with Christ and God, and that we will see that God has made all things new. And one of the ways that he's been doing that is through this peculiar thing called church, called, G called Jesus followers, disciples. 
It's, an, it's a prayer of trust. As we pray this prayer, and as our lives are shaped and formed by this prayer, we are committing ourselves to God in such a way that he would have his way with us. That he would show us what the good life is, what it means to follow him in a world that often is, feels, at least, like it's against us. To say amen, to say it is sure, or let it be so, is to put our utter hope and trust not in what we can do or have done or will do, but in what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ and his ongoing presence in his spirit. That God is still at work moving and surprising. You know, it's crazy. Over the last few, I don't even know, I don't want to put a timeline on it. I fa- the way I've put it is, I feel like my faith is being re-enchanted. That, that for a long period of time, and some of you might find yourself here, is that you do things, you have habits, and you are living the Christian life, and you're not even sure why. It's just something you've been doing. And sometimes you begin to ask the question, why is it that I'm doing this? And it's scary when you don't necessarily have an answer to that question, right? It's just something I have been doing. But then there are moments and seasons of the Christian life where God seems to offer gifts of re-enchantment, of, of, of his presence, of his newness, that God really is the God that we proclaim. And I feel like God has been giving me these gifts in a few different ways. Whether it's in stories of how, like, crazy things that I, that I can't make sense of, that if I was to tell you up here, you'd be like, I don't, no. I don't think God still does that. But what's wild is that I'm remembering, I'm being reminded of, I feel like my life is being shaped in such a way to not be cynical to those things, but to say, wow, God still does those things. I mean, I'm hearing stories of God going after people who are barely looking for him. Where God is showing up through people, through words, through prayers, to make his presence known. Like, this is something that God still does. And this is something that God wants to continue to do through us. And I realize when I hear these stories that my first inclination is to be like, well, that could, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that that could have taken place. There are a lot of explanations of how that would work. And I can, it's, I can easily remove God from the center of the story. But the prayer in praying this, prayer and praying with others, I'm finding it much more difficult to remove God from the center of the story. Like, I can't help but see the world pregnant with God's presence. And I can't tell you why this has happened, except that it's an utter gift from God. And I have a tendency to want to find the magic formula and look back on my life, and it's something that I'm plagued to do, and it's a curse, where I'm like, okay, how did we get here? Did I do this, this, and this? And I can't make sense of it other than God, in his infinite grace and mercy, has been giving me the gift of just being able to see him. And that has been my prayer for us as a church, that as we continue to be people who pray, whose attention is brought back up to God, that we couldn't help but see him around us at work all the time. And not just through the special, crazy, wild things, but through the mundane, day-to-day life things, that God cares that God is here, that God has come in Jesus, that he is at work in his spirit, and that he has called us to bear witness to that truth and to that fact. 
I mean, that is what we are part of. That is what we've been called to. Nothing less than that. That this prayer, the Lord's prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave us, aren't just words that we are praying, but it's a life we've been called into. It's life with God to shape and transform us. And if you've not received the invitation to have your life transformed by the power of Jesus, God is welcoming you into that life. God wants you in his family. And if you're wondering, is that me God's talking to? Yes. I want to end with reading Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, which is a prayer that Paul prays to the church. And I want to pray it over us. And it's a prayer of, of re-enchantment. It's a prayer of, of that God would help us to see and to know what is true. And I want to end here because as we've been going through the Lord's Prayer and as we attend to this doxology which raises our attention or our minds or our focus back onto God and we see where we've been in the prayer, I hope that what we see is that, our, that Jesus is inviting us to have our lives shaped by him always and continually, that, that God has not abandoned us, that he has called us into an ongoing life with him, and that we can have an ongoing relationship, encounter, life with God in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. And thanks be to God.